This week on Keeping Faith. When I think about world events or people doing horrible things, of course, they're terrible things, but I'm not ready ever to say that they're terrible people. And I'm always very intrigued to wonder what desperation led them to do that. And I know that I'm very lucky to not hold that level of hate in my heart. And so that kind of impacts a lot of how I view things. Kayla Rao grew up living all over the world as the daughter of Canadian diplomats. And while they never had explicit conversations about faith as a family, lessons on morality, hope, and empathy were everywhere. But when Kayla's father unexpectedly passed away when she was in her early 20s, Kayla began searching for a sense of stability and meaning she never craved before. And 10 years later, It's landed her with a husband and kids in the middle of a big, loud Jewish family. Kayla and I talk about her lifelong experience as an outsider and how it's led her to feel comfortable raising a family in a culture she doesn't share. She talks about the radical empathy she's learned from seeing the challenges people face across the globe and how all of this has given her a deep faith in the goodness of humanity. Because how do you find your place when you feel like you never belong? This is her story. I'm Maren Smith, and you're listening to Keeping Faith. Faith is located on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario. And Kayla Rao lives on Anishinaabe Mississauga, Haudenosaunee, Ojibwe Chippewa, and Wendat territory in Toronto, Ontario. Curious about whose land you're on? Visit keepingfaithpod.com about for a list of Indigenous mapping resources or get in touch with your local Native Centre or Council. What is giving you hope right now? And what's a story from your life right now that has connected you with your personal sense of faith or hope? So it's impossible to talk about right now and hope with obviously without um, acknowledging that like we're in the middle of a pandemic and that COVID is happening and that's the right now. So I assume when you say right now, you mean like in this crazy moment right now in the last few months. And actually, the answer to this question for me is super easy. Um, And that's my kid. Like, um, it's really hard to have an existentialist crisis or to get deep in your thoughts when you're dealing with the day-to-day of a child and also looking at the world through her eyes uh, inevitably kind of puts things in perspective for me. So what has been grounding me and motivating me and driving me to to feel good is is definitely um being being too busy really to think bigger things <laughs> but also um just just having the joy of her around um and then of course in the middle of covid i got pregnant someone had to get knocked up during this thing um and so <laughs> um that's that's also some hope right like in the middle of 
like a freaking once in a century, I hope once in a century global pandemic, you know, I'm growing a new life. We can talk about bringing in a baby into this world and all that kind of stuff, but um, tremendous sense of, of hope there. Um, so that's what's kind of giving me hope and grounding me right now is not just the monotony of the day to day um, working uh, and taking care of a child, but but still seeing the world from her perspective and and chasing her around. And, you know, there's been a lot of joy coming from from taking care of her, you know, in the middle of the day on a Wednesday, we'll put on 90s rap and like play in the in the sprinkler, stuff like that. That's yeah. it's uh, impossible not to be joyful when that's going on. Yeah. And I think there's something beautiful about the fact that, you know, your child is still young enough that she doesn't have a sense that her day-to-day life is that different. Like she still has her most important things with her. She has you, she has her dad, she has her toys in her backyard and the simplicity of the life that she lives, um, I think is kind of beautiful in times like these. Yeah, no, I mean, the only, I mean, we recently sent her back to daycare. And so that's, we thought that that would give her some normalcy, but really all she asks for now is family days. Is today a family day? Is tomorrow a family day? And so, yeah, it's, um, it's lovely and monotonous and hard, but, but like, yeah, it's certainly grounding that she's kind of totally doesn't get it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's kind of interesting. I think one of the things that the pandemic has done for so many people is focus us in on what is really important or what is essential. And I I think family is one of those things that so many people have come to realize is the core of their life, you know? And and you've heard lots of stories about People who like, you know, have had long commutes to work who are now like, I don't know if I'm going to do this anymore because of the time that they realized they were missing with that family connection or missing with the people they love, however you define that family. And I think it's it's kind of a another beautiful thing that's come out of this really difficult and tragic situation. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I'm I'm once again very lucky and privileged to not be personally affected like no one I know has has died from it no one I know has even gotten sick from it and so um, though I recognize that this is a terrible state of affairs for the world um, not just in my city but like in other places I've lived and with other countries who don't have the capacity to deal with it kind of all those caveats yeah like if if I can unload that kind of daily grind off of myself, especially as a parent of young kids. Wow, like such a joy. For instance, my husband and I went for lunch today and we were walking down our street, which is like a great restaurant street. And there's all these patios out and it was a beautiful day. And I looked at him and I said, wow, there's so many mini utopias that have come from this apocalypse. Mm-hmm. I was really hungry, so I was talking like that. But, um, you know, there's there have been so many joys, but once again, so lucky to kind of, you know, not have to be pulled into the actual terrible realities too much, except for when I read about it. Yeah, totally. And I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, again, your 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 kid is young. Um, 
And so who knows what they'll remember about this time, right? But it's still going to define their lives in a really, in ways that actually we don't even know yet, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Their lives, their economy. Uh, We might have a lot of like people who like nervously OCD, kind of like always washing their hands, kids. Yeah, I have no idea. But it is defining and it's, it's interesting to be living through it. Yeah. And and so I think that's like an interesting kind of segue into talking a little bit about what your own experience was like growing up and kind of the times you were living in and the places and the people that you were interacting with as you were growing up. So maybe take us back there. And what were you, what was your life like growing up? And what were you taught about the world? And what were you taught about faith and hope from your family or the people that were in your life as a young person? Um, So it's funny when I think about my upbringing, I think about it as pretty normal because I did have a very, I was lucky enough to have a very happy and healthy um, upbringing with parents that I realized are probably kind of like late bloom hippies. (laughs) Um, But what's, I guess, notable about my upbringing is that um, I had the privilege of of growing up all over the world. So um, I was born in Ottawa, but um, when I was about six years old, we moved to rural Japan so my parents could teach English. And I went to a Japanese school, which was mm-hmm. its own little hardship. Um, and then, um, and then nothing actually. And then when I was a teenager, we, so for high school, I was in Cairo, Egypt. And then um, once I was in university, they were in Ghana in West Africa. And then um, since Ghana, my mom's lived in Barbados. Um, and then <laughs> until recently, uh, she was evacuated out of Tanzania. So home has always, always, always shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and like even aside from like all the like fancy, sexy international travel, um, my mom kind of gets itchy feet wherever we are. So even before we started traveling and in between great periods of moving and traveling, um, I never lived in a house for longer than two or three years because my mom wanted to move within the city. Um, I don't think it was a socioeconomic thing. I think she really just like loves to move, which mm. nobody else does. So we were constantly, constantly moving um, within the city of Ottawa into various neighborhoods or within the neighborhood. And then notably, I didn't even think to mention this until I was thinking about this podcast. For like six years, I lived on Carleton University campus. So I guess my parents like just did not want to pay rent. And so we would um, instead, like, you know how universities, they have dons or like caretakers of a building or a floor. We were caretakers of entire buildings and I lived on the campus. And so I was a four-year-old growing up among university students, going to the cafeteria, you know, lining up all the chocolate milks. Like when I got to university, I knew exactly, like I knew how to do this because uh, I grew up doing that. So just kind of raised all sorts of different places. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, and I should say also like it was my mom, my dad, me, and then I have a little brother who's 11 years younger. So I was often an only child Um, Like when I was in high school, he was four. So when we Mm. were in Cairo, so like big gap, but so only child kind of. (laughs) Um, So that's, I guess, kind of frames the like 
the story of of kind of like what was different about my upbringing. Um, but aside from that, like I should say, since this is a podcast about faith and hope, I should explain a little bit about like where I'm coming from in terms of that. Um, mm -hmm. So like I was raised celebrating Christmas, Easter, uh, Thanksgiving, which I never really thought of as a religious holiday, but my Jewish husband informs me that Jews don't do it. So Thanksgiving for what it's <laughs> worth. <laughs> um, but I was raised doing those holidays, but purely, purely the consumerist aspects of them, like not, not really anything to do with faith or hope. Those holidays did not connect me in any way to a larger picture or a larger sense of Oh, maybe a sense of belonging. Like, you know, I have all the like the sweet fuzzies and stuff like that about Christmas, but but it didn't really mean anything beyond sweet fuzzies, the way you would get them mm -hmm. at like Halloween. Um so <laughs> um so that was kind of like in terms of of religious upbringing, that's that's what I got. I was never baptized, never um given any kind of religion or at all. Um I guess ooh, I guess I guess I should also mention since this is not a visual thing is that I'm mixed race. <laughs> um, so my mom's white. She's like British, Irish, German, French. Um, and uh, my dad is um, West Indian from Guyana. So he looks like he's of Indian descent. He is of Indian descent, but grew up um, in the West Indies and moved to Canada when he was like eight. So I guess what kind of frames all that is that I don't really look like I belong from anywhere specific and nor have I grown up anywhere specifically. So kind of transient, but very happy. Um, and so don't really have a religion or a faith. I kind of look like anyone and everyone, like I could kind of be from anywhere. Um, but and so I'm hard to place that way. And then, and then growing up, my home changed all the time. So uh, in terms of sense of belonging or sense of community, um, there was no larger community or larger um, place where I fit in aside from my actual family, like the four of us. And then like my little brother really, I don't want to call him an afterthought because he's now 24, but like it was mom, dad and <laughs> me. <laughs> he was like, he was a bit of a, you know, he was late in the game. So, so what was I taught about the world? So I love this question. Um, and I initially my answer was going to be nothing explicitly. We did not have conversations growing up about faith, about hope, about what we felt a duty or an allegiance to. That was not discussions that we had like hmm. ever <laughs> like and that extends to questions about morality, um, what's right and wrong or great truths about the world, not something we discussed. Um, or maybe it was, but I was not listening. It did not hit home. <laughs> and so, but upon reflection, there's tons of implicit lessons in the way that I was raised that I certainly picked up on. Mm. And those are lessons to do with when you grow up seeing dramatically different cultures like Japan, Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa. Those are three of the countries that I just kind of described that I lived in. And then, of course, Canada. Um, right. You know, that that's 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 a nice, you know, it's not everything, but that's got some breadth. And um, when you see how differently people live and how different um, the differences in what they value and what they believe religiously not, 
their ideas of independence and community being very different, of organization and disorganization or chaos being very different, different income levels, like ev- like skin color, of course, like language, everything being so mm-hmm. different. You start to, I guess, implicitly, I learned that, I mean, it, it's simple, but like everything's a construct. Everyone is a product of where they were brought up. Um, everyone's beliefs, as far as I'm concerned, are a product of what they were told to believe by their community, their friends, their family. It's their cultural practice. And so because I saw so many differences, um, I recognize the importance of them. But to me, those kind of big questions or those types of uh, cultural ideas around meaning are, are fabricated, are cultural. And so in terms of learning anything and taking it for myself, um, I resist those questions a lot of the time because mm-hmm. um, I guess because I've seen so many difference between people at such a young age, like everyone obviously as an adult kind of knows this. Um, in terms, I could never really internalize my own meaning because I knew it would just be as fabricated. And I know that sounds insulting and I don't mean it to be, but or or as constructed as it is for anyone else. Um, mm. So yeah, that was a long answer and I could probably keep going. But in terms of what I was taught about the world, um, it's actually funny, like I do want to use a religious phrase to describe it, but what I was taught was there, but for the grace of God go I. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that comes off the tongue really easily for me, actually. Um, and that's really is something that I live by. And I don't just mean like, oh, I lived in a poor country there before the grace of God go I. There before the grace of God go I, freaking anything, you know, uh, death, joy, wealth, fame, like all of it um, is luck and hard work and then like more luck. And so I think I, I have a, like a lot of empathy because of that. Yeah, I guess you brought up this idea of belonging, which I think is a really important one, especially for our generation, because I think a lot of millennials, as we no longer kind of buy into and aren't participating in traditional forms of community anymore, right? A lot of that came from religious community. I think a lot of people in our generation are struggling to recreate that sense of belonging for themselves, to recreate those senses of community. And I, I mean, I've heard people say before that, um, you know, our generation is in a crisis of belonging, finding a sense of meaning, finding a sense of belonging. And so, um, Going back to what you said at the beginning about being such a young person and traveling to all of these different communities and living in these different places and having them switch up so often, you said you found belonging in your your family, but there's also somewhat of a social interaction part of that. You were at school, all that kind of stuff. How were you able to navigate that? What were Were there tools that you developed as a person that helped you kind of navigate always being the new person or always joining a new cultural community that was so different than yours? So it's funny because like I look back on like moving around a lot and I and I actually when I drill down to it I actually mostly went to school in Ottawa. So I was the new person in Japan um, and that was like actually a terrible alienating experience. Uh, rural Japan in 1991 
not super inclusive of a mixed race English speaking person who spoke no Japanese. Um, so that was, I had no tools, totally unprepared. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I came back to Ottawa, um, you know, within a year or two, you, you just kind of integrate. Um, so like, and then when I went to Egypt, I was in an international school and people are constantly coming and going. So nothing actually as a kid, um, because kids are so resilient. Like I, myself, I was resilient and I see it in kids today. But what I did learn as an, is what, like, I, I think there are lessons that I might've used when I was a kid, but as an adult, um, I, I used, I kind of pull from that toolbox all the time. Mm. Um, you know, um, if anyone tells me where they're from, it's likely that I have a really good friend from that country or I've been to that country or I know a little bit about it that maybe not everyone would. Um, and because of the way I look, well, I guess I am a person of color and I look like I could be from a lot of different cultures. And I find that um, this is really funny. Speaking of belonging, um, I constantly get asked where I'm from. We could call it a microaggression. We could not. It depends on my mood. But my new thing is I always say guess. Hmm. And so people always assume or they always guess that I'm from their culture or a culture that they know. And I find that really funny. And so I kind of play off of that and I play off of being I play, I can play off being a visible minority and kind of use it to my advantage to gain rapport with people. And I do it all the freaking time. But then I grew up in Canada. My voice is, I mean, if I go back to Ottawa, it's full Ottawa Valley. Um, and so I can kind of fit in anywhere mm. and build rapport quickly kind of with anyone from anywhere. And that's, that's a tool. Um, I don't know if that fits the belonging question, but that's certainly like something that I've developed. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I'm curious as well about, uh, you were saying that your mom was a person that got, you know, itchy feet and liked traveling around and liked, you know, the process of change. How was that experience for you as a young person? Did you feel the same or um, did you not? And did that ever shift as a feeling for you? Or if it was a struggle, how did your parents kind of frame the constant shift and change and move to you? Uh, good question. Okay. So we only had one really rough shift. Uh, when we moved to Japan, I was six and like six-year-olds kind of just do what they were told. But when we moved to Cairo, I had just finished the ninth grade mm. at a special theater arts school that I had to audition for in Ottawa. And I was living my best life, like going to a fame-esque high school in Ottawa. <laughs> and I and my parents took me home one day from a sleepover at my best friend's house. And so I'm so like a little bit angry still. And um, and my dad said, we're moving to Cairo. And like, dude, I could not find Egypt on a map at that point, which is probably a good indication that I should move. Um, <laughs> and I was very angry. Yeah, it was good, good like Kayla needed some perspective. Um, uh, I was very angry. Um, I definitely like threatened to smash some like Egyptian artifacts that mom had brought back um, on her forays there before the move. And I kept saying, why, why? And this is interesting, I think, for this discussion. And my dad said repeatedly, we're getting too comfortable. Mm. We're too comfortable here. We speak the language. We can, you know, we can converse and move with ease. 
you know, we are too comfortable. And I did not understand that. Mm. And now I do. Um, so um, what he meant by that was it's important for young people, and I don't know how to give this to my daughter, to to experience difference, to have those types of challenges, to know what it's like not to be the majority in the culture. Now, once again, mixed race, not necessarily the majority in the culture, but I navigated through my life in Ottawa with a ton of ease. And so uh, I think he wanted me to feel some difference and to feel different and to be different um, and to be challenged in a whole new way. And so so yeah, reacted super poorly to that, but he said we were getting too comfortable and now I get it. Um, so now it's funny cause I, I struggle all the time. Like I am, I am super locked into a 25 year mortgage and my husband does not want to move. <laughs> he has the opposite of itchy feet. Like I've tried to like propel him to various trips. And so, um, and so I get a little bit sad sometimes that I'm not going to have a life, uh, moving forward where, you know, we're going to pick up and move to, I don't know, Swaziland for three years. Um, I get a little bit sad about that sometimes, but, um, but I'm also interested in what this stability might bring. Mm. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I, I, I think that I, I'm curious to know when you actually went to Cairo, what happened for you? Because you were in such a, you know, you were resistant and you didn't understand why this thing was happening to you. Um, what was your experience like when you actually got there? And did it shift or were you hanging on to that resentment or what changed it for you? It's so weird even to remember it. It was a seamless transition. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Like 15, petulant. Um, and it was a seamless transition. Now, I lucked out. I went to a private international school um, and everybody was kind of new and from all over the place. And I look Egyptian and it was seamless. And where where I connected with people, and I guess this is where I found my sense of belonging as a kid, oh, that just clicked, uh, was theater. So, you know, I'd gone to this private, like this arts, not private, this public art school in Ottawa. And I arrived in Cairo and I instantly am like, I don't know where I got the nerve. I said, I don't need to take your prerequisite acting class. Let me into your advanced acting class as like a new, like sophomore, like what the heck? And they let me. <laughs> and, um, and I just threw myself into that. We did like three or four plays a year. All my friends, all my crushes uh, was theater. So it was, it was that the fact that I could plug myself into this community of diplomats and super wealthy Egyptian kids and specifically the the arts, like the, the theater side of things, made the transition totally seamless to the point where I think maybe not the first Christmas, but certainly the first summer back to Canada felt quite foreign. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how we find community within community. Um and also, like how fast we can become accustomed to something being the way that it is, you know, um, like you just said to the point where like you went back home and you were like, what is this place? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's also an interesting experience, COVID related to like 
how fast we as a world shifted when we had to. And that we can get used to things that we would say that we were we could never get used to in the past or we would never want to do. And how fast that can actually happen when we find ourselves immersed in a situation. Yeah. And I, like, I wonder, like, I wonder if this is how it felt when I, this is silly, but like when the World War II started and people were on the home front back here, like they could not ever imagine their country being at war or like women working in a factory producing bullets. And then they were like, yeah, this is, this is cool. This is my new norm now. I'm, I'm doing this, even though, of course, death and destruction and everything was defining that time. Uh, they just kind of flowed into it. And um, there's a lot about this, the way the world has arranged itself to accommodate this disaster that I love. Mm -hmm. And I'm scared of going back if there ever is going back. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you've talked a little bit about this, but I'm interested in hearing more about what you think your experience growing up in all of this has kind of stuck with you as an adult. Um, how has it influenced kind of the way you have set up your life and what you choose to do now and how you interact with the world and with people? Um, I think it all goes back to empathy. Uh, and sometimes I'm worried that some of the amazing things that I did learn as a child, I get a little bit lazy with. Like I'll, I'll go back to what those were, but I do, I just wanna front load this by saying, sometimes I worry that I should be more active and that I should use my empathy and my knowledge a bit more than I do. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I struggle sometimes to see how the lessons that I learned as a kid translate to my adult life because it's so easy I'm going to laugh to get comfortable mm -hmm. uh, and to kind of get up, you know, get stuck in your day to day grind. You know, raising two kids in the middle of your 30s, doing the career thing, uh, you know, doing this whole kind of archetypal life. Um, I wonder if I am ever doing enough to really break it up. And I, I suspect no. But in terms of kind of like going back to how I see the world, um, I think it influences less how I live my life and more about how I look at the world and how I react to kind of global events and probably a little bit how I interact with other people. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to being, uh, I believe the right word is is tremendously empathetic. Um, when I was thinking about this podcast and about kind of my experiences, a couple of memories came right to the forefront. It's so funny what comes to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Um, I said that initially that my parents never really explicitly taught me every, anything, but it was in there. And so a couple of memories came up actually from Cairo. So my first year that we were in Cairo, and I don't know why, I mean, the fact that I'm bringing it up, I guess, means that it's relevant and that it's sticking out in my brain. Mm -hmm. um, so I was 15, still a little petulant, uh, and certainly a drama queen. And uh, the BOAB of our building. So a BOAB is like a building manager, for lack of a better word, who kind of like cleans the common area of your building, uh, takes up packages, things like that. He smelled and like he had body odor. He was probably quite poor. And I one day, you know, dad, the BOAB, Mahmoud smells. And, uh, and my dad didn't miss a beat didn't like anything. And he just said, Oh, do you want him to use one of our showers? Are you going to let him shower here? <laughs> and it was such a like, like, 
like, damn, you handled that well, dad. Um, because yeah, we had like three or four showers in a luxury 3000 square foot apartment. Like you live in Lux when you go uh, diplomat style. And the answer of like, I didn't even say anything. I don't think because of, you know, the, the answer I'd like to think now would be, yeah, but back then, absolutely not. He can't come into our apartment, but I never complained about anyone smelling pretty much ever again in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look at poverty very differently. Uh, about a year later, it was Eid. And Eid mm-hmm. is this holiday where like tons of goats and cows, I think mostly goats, are just slaughtered all across the city. And usually what happens is the wealthier people slaughter all these goats and give the meat to the poorer people. That's like part of the holiday. And, you know, I've been a vegetarian since I was six years old. And, uh, and so that holiday was always a bit bizarre for me. And one day I came home from school and I opened up the fridge and Marin, there was like a full goat's head in my fridge, like no saran wrap, just like on a platter, full goat decapitated head. Dad, can you like warn me about the goat's head? And he said, sorry, they don't have a fridge. So Mm. we're using ours. And I was like, all right, cool. I just like, I'll eat something from the pantry tonight. So stories like that kind of come to mind in terms of like how I look at people from around the world and how I empathize with people. And I think here's what's really impacted me is that I've become a huge, I'd like to think I'm more empathetic. I have my good days and my bad days, Hmm. but I can almost always look at things from different perspectives. And this is my third Boab story. (laughs) Um, I think it was the last year we were in Cairo. Uh, Mahmoud was found in our front area, right in front of our building, hitting his wife repeatedly. And the building, which was filled with diplomats from America, maybe one other Canadian family in some places from Europe and some oil families. And everyone convened a meeting in someone's apartment to discuss what to do with him. And I remember my parents were so put, like I can, my memory isn't great of this, but they were so put off by this meeting. His how dare, like, yes, it's awful that he was beating his wife and that is terrible. And it is very common in Egypt, but how dare we kind of convene this colonialist-esque meeting with hors d'oeuvres catered by food made by our maids and served to us while we discuss the fate of this man. And they were disgusted. And it and it seemed as though the discussion really broke down into how dare he do it in front of our building. <laughs> and so mm. I don't know what happened with him. I don't remember. But not only have I kind of, I like to think, become more empathetic around kind of people's different experiences and kind of understand what kind of basic necessities I take for granted, um, I also have become a bit of a relativist, you know, when I think about world events or people doing horrible things, uh, of course, they're terrible things, but I'm not ready ever to say that they're terrible people. And I'm always very intrigued to wonder what led them to do that, what desperation led them to do that. And I know that I'm very lucky to hold, not hold that level of hate in my heart and not to have grown up Mm. hating a group of people like that. And so um, like that kind of impacts a lot of like how I view things, how I like view people from other places, how I view global events. 
But to be honest, Marin, in terms of my actions, I've probably gotten pretty comfortable and I don't know how much it really impacts it. Yeah. It's interesting to me what you said there because in some ways that strikes me as a form of faith. It's a form of faith in people. It's a form of faith in people's intentions or their, their humanity, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that. I think like that was kind of be the kind of the best I could offer up <laughs> in this conversation was I do I do believe that people are mostly good. I do believe that most people are trying their best and that that's what I think about when I like when I view these types of world events, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all really interesting and really important. So I'm really, really grateful that you shared all these stories. <laughs> so many stories. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you've brought up your husband a bunch. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And um, you've also brought up that uh, he's Jewish and grew up as Jewish. And you've talked about how you grew up without any sort of directive or conversations or structured kind of faith in your life. Um, So I'm curious about how those two things came together when you two met and and how you decided or how you navigated that when you were building your relationship? Um, So when we first met, I mean, we just met, um, but, uh, but actually, no, like really, really soon into our relationship, uh, like crazy soon before it even was a relationship, I would say, um, he talked about how conversion, my conversion to Judaism would be Uh, really important to him, maybe even almost a deal breaker if I didn't. And so, um, and so I, at the time, like when we first started dating, I was kind of like, yeah, okay, sure. Like if I decide that I want to marry you and spend my life with you, like, I'm sure I'll convert whatever. That was a little bit dismissive and it wasn't dishonest, but that's kind of like, I was like, like we just met. Um, And then obviously things got more serious and, you know, I started to learn more about Jewish culture and um, Jewish celebrations and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, when, it, when it came time to really kind of make the decision on whether or not I would convert, I decided I was not comfortable with that. Hmm. And, um, and the reason I like the obvious follow up is why. Um, and the reason for that was it felt inauthentic. Uh, it was mm. disingenuous. Uh, part of converting to Judaism, it's not just like, yeah, like here, sign here. It's, um, you know, if anyone's watched season six of Sex in the City, you know from Charlotte's experience that you actually need to take like a year full of classes and then culminating in going before a panel of three rabbis called the Beit Dean. I hope I got that right. Um, <laughs> to To talk about and kind of to be like grilled a little bit on why you want to be Jewish and what you know. Mm. And I couldn't go before those rabbis or participate in those courses when when it wasn't authentically who I was 
or what I believed in or what I belonged to. It would be, I felt uh, insulting, honestly, to the culture to falsify that. So once we talked about it more and I kind of it just realized that it just wouldn't be correct for me. Mm -hmm. um, he kind of communicated that, well, what he really wanted was for his kids to be Jewish. Mm. And Jew Judaism is matrilineal. So that's why my conversion would have been uh, part and parcel with that. Mm -hmm. um, but we spoke to the rabbi, as one does. And uh, and we were able to, um, at about 11 months, oh, no, she might have been like six months old. Uh, we converted my daughter to Judaism. And uh, I am pregnant with a boy. And uh, we will convert him as well. And, uh, and we'll raise them Jewish. And Raising them Jewish means, well, what it means so far is celebrating the holidays. Some of them, they have a lot, so you got to pick and choose. And um, and reading, you know, exper experiencing kind of the sights and the smells of being Jewish. So like the food, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the lights of Hanukkah, um, you know, Passover seders. So just kind of going through those rituals. And when you're in your home, like kids only know what they experience. And so if we celebrate it, she's experiencing it. And so it's actually been quite simple. It's been a lot of work for him, um, but it's been pretty easy so far, I would say. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he'd say that, but that's what I would say. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you decided not to convert yourself. Um, and you kind of talked about the reasoning behind that. But at the same time, you are participating in raising your kids in this faith tradition or this cultural tradition. How how did you land on that? How did you land on on creating this environment for your children to grow up and or allowing them to participate in this, but not like fully committing it to it yourself in the same way? Um, I guess the answer is a bit romantic. Ugh. Um. <laughs> It was important to me that he that the father of my children was this man. Mm -hmm. I knew if this is what being Jewish is, if this is what's important to him, is this kind of love and food and family that's loud and yells at each other and because that's part of it. Yeah. And um, you know, darkness and light, because there's just like a lot of that type of stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Uh and like egg bread um then if like but if that's if that's part of what it means to be jewish for him then i'll happily take that for my kids and for my family um mm -hmm. i should also mention like you said religious slash cultural tradition um he would never be comfortable with the term atheist uh, nor would i be oddly enough uh mm -hmm. but but he it really is more cultural to him uh mm -hmm. rather than it's not important to him that his kids believe in God, um, but it is important to him that his kids identify as Jewish, kind of as a culture, mm -hmm. uh, or as a culture, not kind of as a culture. And I'm okay with that. Um, I'm, once again, I'm very comfortable on not necessarily fully belonging in a situation, mm -hmm. very comfortable with that. And I do feel like I belong in my house. Um, at some point, we'll have to have the discussion on like why mommy's not a Jew, but uh, I don't feel kind of excluded yet. I'm sure the days will come, mm. but 
I like I'm comfortable being an outsider in some of that. And so that's probably what allows me to kind of go like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's go for it. Yeah. Yeah. What has it been like for you to kind of participate in a cultural, like we said, religious tradition, all this that has, like you were saying, like set rituals at times of year that have practices involved with them and that have a deep history as well. Because from what I understand about your own celebrating of holidays and, and stuff growing up, that wasn't a part of it. But I know from my own experience with Jewish rituals and traditions, that idea of like lineage and history is very much a part of how you celebrate these um, these holidays and create meaning from them. So I'm curious as to what that experience has been like for you. It has that level of mm-hmm. meaning for my husband, mm-hmm. but not necessarily for me, I guess. Um, and it's new to me, almost right. as new as it is for my kids. And and like that's okay because kind of going back to my upbringing, what matters to me is not the history, is not the struggle, which like mm-hmm. that's a big part of that type of tradition, but is but is the family. And Judaism, oh, he'd be so proud of me right now. Judaism at its core is not necessarily, yes, it is about your culture and the history and like people have been doing this for so long and have survived doing this for so long, uh, despite people trying to stop it. But the way, the best way to practice Judaism is not at the shul, not at the synagogue, Mm. um, but in your home, right? It's, It's in those kind of small private family moments and even though people you know it is connected to this larger history what i tap into or why i find uh the meaning and the joy uh because we've been together about 10 years now uh is in those Mm. small private family moments um in making it fun for my daughter or making it accessible for my daughter um i'm sure the day will come where 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 i'll feel excluded from parts of it and, you know, I'll get the sads for a few days and I'll get over it. <laughs> um, but it's not kind of uh, an enduring issue. Uh, the other funny thing about all this is I didn't convert. Uh, we got married five years ago. So I didn't convert five and a bit years ago because it didn't feel authentic and sincere uh, from me. And it was really important. Um, I am pretty honest and I don't uh, like to be mm-hmm. insincere, especially about those types of things. But I often joke with my husband that, like, in 20 years, it might be a choice that I opt to make because at that point it might be the mm-hmm. sincere reflection of who I am. Who knows? I, I don't know. I might like retire and convert. We'll see. Um, I don't see it happening, but uh, it's definitely more of a possibility in 20 years than it was five years ago. Hmm. And And is that the result you think of having the personal experience of the tradition, like you were saying in your home and and what it means in that way? Or is it just that you, you know, have also lived a life of change and being open to change? Or is it both? I'm, I'm curious. I don't know. Like, I think it just might feel, yeah, it might feel like, like I've been doing this for 20 years. I am a Jew, darn it. Like it might feel like, it might feel like that uh, at the end of it. Uh, or in, in 20 years or in like whenever it might start to feel authentic. Um, I, I can see it more if we really get plugged into a certain Jewish community in our area. And mm-hmm. if I like really, truly, you know, at that point in time, feel that way. Um, 
because kind of part and parcel with growing up all over the place and kind of being a constant outsider was like my community was my family. Like, yeah, I had the theater thing going on, but that shifted. Like I kind of left theater, I would say 10, 12 years ago when I graduated university, that kind of just kind of fell by the wayside, unfortunately. And so, um, or it was a choice, but it, you know, um, and so my community has always been my family. I'm actually like kind of weird, uh, feeling weirded out about having a community of people that just kind of open their arms because we're Jewish. Like that's very bizarre to me. Um, right. But, um, but if I do find that community and I like it, uh, maybe, but it, to me, it's always family. So it would be because um, I don't know. We'll see. I we'll see when I get there, if I ever do it. Yeah. You've talked about how your it was important to your husband to raise, you know, your children Jewish and how that has been, a big part of his upbringing that he's offered and brought to your children. Is there anything from your own experience and your own upbringing and all of the things that you've sort of shared that you hope to bring to your kids too? That's a really good question. And that is one I struggle with. Um, My husband is so strong and comes with such a strong kind of uh, very established uh, kind of set of rules or culture that it's that it's it's not easy, but it you know trying to figure out which tenets or which parts of your culture and your upbringing you're going to share with your kids um, is probably kind of an easy choice. Actually, mm-hmm. doing it, of course, is hard, but choosing what to share is easy. Um, and uh, and I can be a little bit lazier than him, so he'll just kind of go for it um, mm-hmm. if I don't offer up anything. And so, what do I want to bring them? What I'd love to give them. And I don't know, once again, I mean, she's three, but I don't know how or how I will achieve this is, is I do want them, my kids to have, uh, to be little relativists as well, <laughs> um, you know, to, to kind of uh, always, you know, simple things like always looking at both sides of the story or realizing that a story doesn't have both sides, that it's circular or spherical and like it's, it's everything and, and recognizing that you can't know everything. Um, and, and of course recognizing their insane, insane privilege that they've been born Mm -hmm. into purely out of luck. Um, and that they did not earn the incredible privilege that they grew into and neither did I, it was total luck. And so I'd love to impart those types of ideas onto them. And also a love of travel, mostly so I have some good like little travel buddies. <laughs> um, and I don't really know how to do that, you know, because like, you know, I can't just say like, all right, everyone, we're, you know, we've gotten too comfortable. We're moving to Swaziland. Like we can't do that. Um, or, I mean, I can do it. Uh, you know, our jobs allow us to take those leaves of absence. And early on in our marriage and before we had kids, I would advocate that, you know, we should take a year off and and shift mm-hmm. the kids somewhere for a year, especially if they're young. And like, you know, I have a teaching degree, schooling can kind of be mm-hmm. uh, accomplished, uh, if not in a system, then like by myself. But now like, you know, I'm mid thirties, second kid on the way. To be honest, I don't see that type of shift happening, unfortunately, anytime soon. And so I don't really know how to impart that. And so 
I think I'm going to have to stop being so quote unquote lazy. And that's a self-described term. So don't worry about it. Um, and volunteer or find a couple causes that interest me and whether or not I involve them directly in it, the kids, um, I think just seeing their mom potentially being a little bit uh, more socially active and maybe watching less like Netflix um, might teach them some of those lessons. Um, just kind of growing up in a household with people who do that regularly. So hopefully when these kiddos become you know, a little bit more independent, I can do that. And this conversation is a good reminder and kind of a good kick in the pants that I should be actively thinking about it. Um, parenting, it's easy to be super reactive and not super proactive. And uh, and it's uh, it's a journey, man. But I don't really know what I'll bring, but maybe some of that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Before I kind of transition into the last couple of questions I have, I just want to offer you a space. Is there anything else that you want to say? Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to get to? Or was there anything that as we were talking kind of came into your mind that you want to share or, you know, insert into this conversation? Yeah, I do want to say something. So I, because I didn't grow up with a community or kind of a set group of like beliefs or morality or anything like that. Um, there, there have been times as I've gotten older where I've been a little bit angry that I didn't have it. Mm. Um, one of my best friends when I was growing up uh, or who I met in Cairo um, is Baha'i. And Baha'is are like this like really small community um, that are spread out all over the world. And no matter wherever she traveled, she would just be like, she would just like plug into the Baha'i community there and would have like an instant group of friends or something to do Friday night. Mm. And I never had that. And it wasn't a really big problem for me because it was all about the family until my dad died. Mm. Um, you know, I've talked about my dad a couple of times so far, and I think it's apparent um, kind of how much he informed some of the lessons that I learned. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was 22, it was sudden, uh, cardiac arrest. And I was so freaking unprepared for that. Like just so, I mean, like, and everyone should be, but I really was. And I didn't have, you know, a set of religious rules to help me figure that out. You know, Jews sit Shiva for seven days and have all of these rules and tell you what to freaking do. Um, and other cultures have communities that come around them. And I was desperate for a to-do list mm. uh, to figure that out. And I didn't have one. Now, I'm sure everyone feels this way. Like even, you know, like anyone who still like grows up in a community, something like that happens to them at a young age. And they're still very untethered. But I felt completely untethered mm. and, uh, and kind of had to figure it out kind of dig that hole out for myself. And like, I guess like the cute cherry on top of this awful story was that I did it by building a new family. Like grief is never over, but my family unit, which was my everything in so many ways, completely collapsed. Like just like there was four and then there were three and my little brother was 11. And my mom was like, just, totally like I think she's still stunned um and uh and so 
I guess that's why I've tied myself to this mortgage, oh God, um, to, to kind of claw myself out of that was to create stability for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, I didn't want the joys of moving around and discovering new people and uh, learning about others. Like, I did not care. Um, I, I just wanted stability in my own family unit. And within a year and a half, I met my husband. And here we are, like, you know, so I think uh, the fact that, like, I think those two things are directly related. And I crave stability for a really, really, really long time. Mm -hmm. And if I look at my life now, well, I've done everything society's told you to do, because like, I might not have a lot of rules for myself. But like, when society tells me I do something, like, I do it, like got married, got the house, the job, like one, two kids, like I am, you know, pretty square, I guess, in that respect. Um, But it it was in direct reaction to that happening and kind of having to figure it out for myself. So like, I did feel some kind of resentment for for not having um, some of those lessons or some of those that guidance kind of readily available. Yeah. Um, I imagine that there are actually a lot of people out there, especially at a time like now where, um, I think people have lost a lot as a result of this pandemic and might even have lost people in their lives as a result of it, um, that might not have, like you didn't, a tradition to rely on or that set of rules or that to-do list to get them through. And I'm curious as to what you would say to people like that or what you would offer as people struggle to navigate through that really drastic emotional change. Um, So because I didn't have a to-do list, I've done a lot of research and a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd like to start by saying people always say that you can't really describe deep grief or it's hard to kind of understand it. And I know before I lost my dad, I had no touch point for that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, if I can be a little bit funny, I um, I think I know what it, like how to best describe the feeling of it. And, and it's funny, like in the depths of despair after dad died, this movie poster kept like visually coming up in my head. And I'll describe what this movie poster was. Mm-hmm. And I believe, like, bear with me, I think it describes grief. It's an early 1990s movie called Death Becomes Her. Uh, and it stars Bruce Willis and Meryl Streep and I believe Goldie Hawn. And the cover of this movie poster is, and it's like a farce, um, I think, uh, is Meryl Streep is kind of like clinging on to like a super young Bruce Willis. And Goldie Hawn is standing dead straight looking at the camera. And she has a really shocked look on her face. And she has a giant hole in her torso, like where her stomach should be, like a cannon ball sized hole. And it's like she's still connected on her sides. And like, it's not gory. There's just like, it's as if a cannonball went like smooth through her. Um, And Bruce Willis is sticking grotesquely, like sticking his arm through that hole in her stomach and holding a candelabra. And they're all like mugging to the camera. It's ridiculous. But grief to me, felt like that giant hole 
and it's your middle, it's your core, it's your everything, right? And it's funny, I'm gesticulating right now and I'm pregnant and there's a baby in there. Like it, it, it was just gone and you're just the shell of the person you were initially, like, like, sorry, initially you are the shell of the person you were. And, um, and that's what it felt like. And that's what I, I think that's the best description I can give is that you are walking around living in this world, you know, if it's super early on figuring out funeral arrangements, plastering a happy smile on your face during a funeral, oh, don't get me started on funerals. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, you've got this giant hole and you think, all right, how do I fill this? And that's kind of what you have to start with. And I would say, you know, to, to those who feel like they're at the beginning of their giant hole in the middle of their body journey, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid those feelings and you can't avoid that anxiety and that despair and you shouldn't um, because it'll get you. And um, my advice, which I'm sure sounds glib and silly to people when they're newly grieving, is I always say, you're sitting in poo. You know, you're, you're, you're in, in just a giant vat of like just awful and, and be there because that's where you're going to have to be for a while and it sucks and it's awful. And hopefully you have a life. Um, I was lucky, like not lucky, but because I was 22, I didn't have anyone to take care of, but myself, you know, I had like, I had like a whatever job I had just finished school. Like though the timing was awful because I was so young, I didn't have any distractions really. Um, and really no responsibilities. And so I could just sit there. And uh, that's what I recommend people do uh, for, you know, first six months, because that's how long it takes. And, ooh, and second piece of advice would be to be forgiving with yourself. You know, you're not the person you were before, you're the person you were before with a giant hole in the middle of you. And, uh, and some days you can't be social, and you're just going to stay in bed. And that's okay. And it's really hard for people to adjust their expectations of themselves. Yeah. Uh, and that can be really hard, but I don't know, someone should just like, you should, you know, when someone dies, you should just get like a big card or a big Kate that says like, be forgiving with yourself and seek therapy in six months. <laughs> like, once the shock wears off. But uh, yeah. So that's what I would say. Yeah. That's really insightful. Thank you very much for sharing that. So... The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways, as an allegiance or duty that you have to something, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself, or as something you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each part of that definition to you as a question. So for you in your life, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to? Uh, I feel a duty and allegiance to my family uh, to be a good and healthy uh, mother and spouse. Mm. That would probably be uh, the biggest for me. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what do you put your faith or trust in that is bigger than yourself? This I don't know. Um, I do trust people or humanity generally. And so I do trust that we all want whatever we believe is good and that people are trying their hardest. Mm. Um, so it's not necessarily, maybe it's a concept, but it's not necessarily uh, anything firm. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I, I do trust that people are doing their best and they believe that they are doing and saying what is right. And I don't know if I always have faith or trust in it, um, but I, you know, I might disagree, but um, I do trust that. I do believe that uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, and what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I believe that there's always something that at the core of us, we feel like or we know that is true. Okay, I'll give two answers. I know and I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. One, that that I will never know and understand everything. Mm-hmm. I, and I know that's kind of flipping it on its head, but I know that there are things I'll never understand uh, about people. Like even though I believe they're doing their bestest, uh, there are certain things that I'll just never get or understand from people. And kind of more globally, uh, you know, some of those big questions about why are we here? What are we doing here? Meaning of life, like, you know, the biggies. Um, I know that I'll never have those answers. And I am perfectly fine with that. Mm, Yeah. So I want to ask you if there is a practice that you have in your life that you do on a regular basis, it could be daily or weekly or monthly, that connects you to your sense of faith or hope or belonging? Um, I love ritual or actually I love habit. (laughs) I don't really know the difference sometimes. Um, And uh, what this took me a while to think of, like to identify rather, Um, but there is something that um, I used to do a lot and that I've picked up again during COVID because I have more time. And it's basically, it's something that I do when I first wake up in terms of kind of centering myself. And I guess it would kind of be, um, you know, would best be described as mindfulness um, that helps kind of connect me to my day uh, and kind of configures my mind uh, for what I have to do. So it's kind of to prepare myself for the day. And it's mostly kind of just a mental exercise that I do when I first wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what in general I do is first thing when I wake up in the morning, I I sort my day. I'm very like, uh, I like kind of reason. <laughs> um, and I it always starts with figuring out what is the thing when you're super like still super honest because you've just woken up and super vulnerable what is the thing that might instantly the negative thing i should say that instantly pops into my mind that i might be fearful of or anxious of for the day so it could be something like a meeting or like an interaction or you know 
anything, you know, like, oh, I got to go, you know, pick my kid up at daycare. Like it could be anything. Um, and whatever that first thing is that causes like a tinkle of anxiety or a huge load of anxiety, um, I focus on it and I figure it out right away. I get it off my plate. I don't mm. like to procrastinate and I don't like carrying uh, anxiety with me throughout the day about that thing. Because uh, I think that when you're kind of like fully conscious and you're kind of going about your day, it's easy to have like background anxiety and you don't always know uh, what it is. And I try to identify it first thing. So it's kind of like thinking through that top thing I need to tackle and then kind of working backwards through my day uh, and then kind of focusing um, on the more pleasant things. Yeah. Um, first came about it probably, it was probably around uh, after my dad died trying to kind of face the day um, and then kind of all the kind of associated anxiety that kind of came after that event uh, of, of facing the day you know, or, and then it starts to translate to job interviews or to like, you know, whatever was at hand, but it, it came about because I was starting to feel some of that, I'll call it background anxiety or foreground anxiety kind of chasing me throughout the day. And I didn't like it. Uh, it makes me sick. Like I really hate having those types of feelings. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people struggle with anxiety and I, uh, I don't have an anxiety disorder, but I do like, you know, like all people, experience anxiety um and uh yeah it calms me like it it means that you know i've identified you know the elephant in the room that's troubling me for the day and that i can kind of move forward you know i've already dealt with it mentally and so when i come or maybe kind of developed an action plan for how to deal with it or anything else that kind of comes up throughout my day mm -hmm. and uh uh, it definitely gives me kind of a sense of of inner peace and, uh, you know, the ability to, like, put on a pair of pants and, like, do whatever I need to do because I've been so utterly kind of honest with myself right from the get-go. So, yeah, I guess it just kind of brings me a little bit more uh, peace of mind. Yeah, it's... um, It sounds like it. it's also really empowering because right away you have problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could solve that problem, then you can solve the next one. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Like, you know, whatever is the heart. And like, you, like obviously, it's terrible things can happen at any point in the day and you never really know. But uh, yeah, like I've, I've already problem solved. I've done my problem solving um, and I don't need to be as anxious about it anymore. And I already have my action plan and I've prepared for it. And I like being prepared. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that idea of you're talking about the mental space that worry and anxiety takes that then doesn't give you the energy or the freedom to do the other things that you want to do in your life is really important. Yeah. You just need a little bit of work and then you don't need to sacrifice it and you can go watch like all the mind numbing reality television you want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And you can find Kayla's morning problem-solving practice in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com slash library, where you can listen to her guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith, and Ron Kelly composes our awesome music too. If this episode connected with you, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. 
You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod or send us an email at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We love hearing from you. Next week, we'll talk to Jessica Rose about how a move to LA to pursue her acting dreams took a drastic turn when soon after arriving, her life fell apart, leaving her with no job, nowhere to live, and no one to lean on. But instead of running from the chaos, Jessica decided to stay put and ask what the situation had to teach her. And that changed everything. But until then, I'll be holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.